The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. I suspect all of us have failed at something one time or another. Sometimes it's just perspective. The results of your investigations did not meet your client's expectations. But it's not just investigations. It could apply to any industry, any business, any profession. And how do you handle that situation? Do you handle it with anger or avoidance or with grace and finesse? Or do you prepare your client at the onset? So today, my guest will discuss those testy and uncomfortable situations where you or somebody else feel like you failed. Let me introduce you to Brian Willingham. Good morning, Brian. Good morning. Hopefully, this won't be too uncomfortable, but hopefully, we'll have a really good show here. Yeah, well, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So, please tell us about who you are, Brian, and what you do. So, uh, I am a private investigator. I've been a private investigator for about 14 years now. Uh, I kind of took a circuitous uh, route to the to route to the business. Um, I've always been. It, it's kind of been in my blood. My father is a private investigator, um, mm. and you know, when I was in high school, I sort of took one of those aptitude test to see what I would, uh, what kind of career that I would really enjoy and, and private investigator and, uh, came up as the number one thing. Um, but my real love and passion has always been sports. And, um, I, I've always wanted to be a baseball player, like probably every kid in America. Yeah. Um, and until I realized that I was never going to be good enough to actually play sports, uh, I wanted to be like the general manager of the New York Mets. And then, uh, so I, I kind of pursued, um, pursued that for a number of years. I, I, I got a degree in business with a with um with um a focus in sports management and I worked for Major League Baseball and the New York Giants and worked for a sports photography business. And then fate led me back to the business. I worked for with my father's company for a number of years and then um five years ago I went on my own. Um and here we are today. And who's your father's company, Brian? What's the name of that? It's Griffin Strategies, based in uh, White Plains. They were previously known as Data Source. He's been in the business for Jesus uh, thirty years or so. Um, uh, so he's been around the block. Yeah, there's a, yeah, and, and actually, there's quite a few um, sons or daughters of fathers that have been in the business for a while that are coming up, like you. 
Yeah, it's interesting, you know, and this is a whole different topic, but it's it's a very challenging business to get into. And sometimes you kind of, you have to know the right people. And I happen to know the right person to get into this business. Uh, and, 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 and here we are today, so. Yeah. And what do you specialize in? I do a lot of, um, I do background investigations, really in-depth background investigations for financial type firms, private equity firms, hedge funds. Um, I've, I've been focusing a lot of, I do locates for people, people who have long lost relatives and those kind of things, very difficult, challenging cases of, mm-hmm. that probably not many other people are willing to take. Um, and lately I've been focusing a lot on um, white collar criminal defense work and other sort of civil work, um, which is you know kind of a boom sort of industry, especially out here on the East Coast, where um, <laughs> there sure. seems to be something every day on insider trading and those kind of things. So those have been my three sort of um, main areas of focus. And I have to tell you that I, uh, reading your bio, I loved it. Uh, <laughs> you start out with father of two amazing kids, husband to an amazing wife, beer lover, less than stellar golfer, sports junkie. It was great. That was, that was cool to read. Thank you very much. So we're going to be ta- we're talking today about um, what how do you handle it when you fail? And you have some very uh, great points about this, and I'll just let you let you start with that with that leading. Sure. I mean, failure is something that you know we all go through. We go through it in business. We go through it in life. You know, I as you mentioned, I have I have two amazing kids and. And I have a son who plays baseball, and 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 you know I always talk about failure with him. I mean, I tell him Babe Ruth. He always talks about Babe Ruth, and I said even Babe Ruth failed, you know, seventy percent of the time that he that he got up. So you know, it's something that you always have to deal with, um, and nobody really likes to admit it, and nobody really likes to talk about it. But I, mm-hmm. and I think you know what spurred on this whole conversation was a a blog post that I wrote um, a couple months back when I was talking about a case that I actually failed on. Um, and, and the general story is is that we were retained by a woman who was looking for her father. Um, you know, the, she didn't know that her father had even existed until a few years ago. And you know, when her estranged mother sort of called her out of the blue and told her, um, and she had very sort of limited amount of details about who her father was. She knew he was his first name, the town he was born in Eastern Europe, and his approximate age. Now, you know, this seems at the bat, at the front, at the onset, um, you know, that this is one of these impossible cases. But there was a few unique things that she knew. He had a very unique first name um, and some certain details that I thought it might be possible. So she had spent all this time, you know, in detailing all these notes about all this stuff she found, and then she was stuck, and she called us and asked if um, we could help. And, you know, one of the things that I preach um, on my blog and personally is being totally upfront and, and honest with her. And I knew right from the beginning that this was going to be an extremely tough case, and I told her all the challenges, and um, and but... You know, I thought we we could help her out. We laid out a plan and a budget, and that that I thought that we might be able to succeed. Um, but at the end of the day, we didn't. <laughs> we we delivered our report to her, um, laid out everything we did. We communicated her throughout the process. You know, saying you know what this is what we had done, 
And ultimately, we didn't. And, of course, it never gives you a good, warm, and fuzzy feeling when that happens. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You don't like to fail. And, you know, people are, in this particular case, she's spending a lot of money for her um, to to pay for this. And, you know, I didn't feel good about it, but it it, it sort of is what it was. (laughs) Uh, And I couldn't really change it. And and the reason why I ultimately wrote the blog post is because we typically send out sort of a... um, a form at the end of the case just saying, like, how did we do? Uh, rating on a scale of 1 to 10. And she rated us perfect 10s on everything. And it wow. sort of caught me off guard. And I mm-hmm. said to myself, all right, well, we did something right here. <laughs> you know, we failed. But ultimately, we really succeeded. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a, I guess there's a right way to fail and a wrong way to fail. And there's certain sort of things that, um, you know, characteristics and traits that I take along with me that I think sort of help with that process and help ease the failure a little bit. Exactly. Um, and in this case, um, didn't you say that that she had tracked her father to the United States? And even so he had an unusual name even in the United States where you you at least thought you had a trail. Exactly, and we knew that he was in the Midwest somewhere. We had a trail in the late 1970s. So what we ended up doing in this particular case is we found all the people that sort of fit the description, the age bracket and the time period where we were living, and we called every single one of them. And we Mm. talked to 20-something different people um, asking if they were them, and they weren't. I mean, and, you know, in this particular case, there's all kinds of factors that could have happened. I mean, the details that they have might be wrong. The age might be wrong. There's so many Mm -hmm. things that could potentially Mm -hmm. have gone wrong here. Um, But we did, we thought we had a pretty decent plan in place, but ultimately it wasn't successful. And that's always hard. I mean, because I know you, like most of us, take your work very seriously, and you want results. Yep. And 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 you want to come through for that client. Even I mean, actually, even if they weren't paying you, you'd want to be successful. Absolutely. So it's I mean, hard. it's ingrained. It's, it's ingrained in your DNA. Everybody's DNA. Yeah. Uh, exactly. And especially in this business, we're we're in a results driven business. I mean, there's, there's really no easy way around it. I mean, you get, you're sort of judged by your results, um, but the results aren't predictable and there's no guarantees. I mean, depending on the kind of work that you're doing, um, there's really no guarantee. There's too many variables, um, you know, and, and, and it depending on the case, types of case you're working on. When I mentioned before, I do, I've been doing some white collar criminal defense work and the, you know, and, and you're fighting an uphill battle. It's yeah. the, the, you know, the guilty uh, percent rate is, is around 97%. So, I mean, <laughs> it's a tough challenge. So, yeah. you know, succeeding in one of those cases is kind of like winning the lottery. But, you know, you, you have to do what you can. You've got to be honest. You have to be, you know, assess your capabilities and be transparent about what you're doing and communicating and, um, you know, handling the expectations of, of, of the client. So, Brian, when you first talked, when she first contacted you, yeah. tell us about that, that first contact and how you communicated with her from the beginning. Well, I mean, in, in all of these cases, I'm trying to extract as much possible information as I, in this particular case, I'm trying to extract as much information as she has um, 
about her father. And, you know, I'm trying to pull away the relevant details. You know, sometimes uh, in cases, people like to tell you what they think and all these stories, but I'm interested in, in sort of the factual information, you know, um, not something that they heard through something that they might mm-hmm. be have gone somewhere. I'm interested in the factual information. So, you know, after gathering all the information and I'm assessing it and I'm saying, all right, what are our what can we do here to possibly um, to possibly help her out and what would it take to really do that um, and you know i'm it really doesn't interest me um, you know at the end of the day, I have to put myself in a position to win um, to to succeed and in every case i don't take it, I say this to every client that calls me. I don't take cases that I don't think I can really help out, especially in these cases where you're trying to find somebody. In some cases, I I might feel like there's somebody better that would be able to do something better. If it's a Mm -hmm. skill or a talent that I don't have, I would refer it out to somebody else. Um, But, you know, I'm trying to be as as honest as I can about the assessment of what our capabilities are. And so in this case, I want to put myself in a position to really help her out. So I laid out a plan, a budget. This is how we, what we're going to do, how we're going to do it. Um, and, and throughout the process, um, from the beginning to the end, I was communicating with her weekly. You know, this is where we are. This is what we've done. Um, and, and I think at the end of the day, I spoke to her afterwards. She really appreciated the effort, the communication. She knew that we were going above and beyond what we had even said that we would do. Um, so I, the, all of those things, I think, ultimately led to successful, failing successfully, as, mm-hmm. as I mentioned mm-hmm. in the article. Mm-hmm. And so some people are listening might wonder how, how you even determine a budget on something like this when there's so many unknowns. So yeah. how did you go through that process? Well, in this particular case, what I typically do in these cases is is do some sort of flat fee budget, and I tell them, listen, it's going to cost you X amount of money, and this is what I'm going to do, and this is how I'm I'm going to approach it. Um, I I don't think most clients don't want to know, um, have this open-ended budget. I think that's that's very... um, you know, it's very challenging to have an open-ended budget. So I, I set a budget and I said, hey, this is what I will charge. This is how far I'm going to go. And wherever we end up, you know, hopefully it's a good result. Um, and, then, and that's it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so before you actually launched the case, how many times did you talk to her? Uh, several times, um, you know, she she had talked to her husband. She had talked to uh, about you know whether she wanted to go with this through with this process. Um, I spoke to her several times. Um, I can't really remember exactly how many times, mm-hmm. but um, that was that was kind of the, the process. So I think what's important what what you said is you created a relationship where your client bought into the way you were going to investigate it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I I, I kind of promote a, um, you know, I think our business in general, the investigative business, doesn't have a, um, the, the, the transparency I don't think is always there. There's sort of a cloak mm-hmm. and dagger part of our business that, mm-hmm. that some people like to highlight, um, 
And, and I don't do that, and I try to completely stay away from it. I'm, I'm being transparent about the process. I'm telling her exactly what I'm going to do. I'm not, you know. So I think, from a trust point of perspective, um, I think people really uh, um, are attracted to that. You know, they trust you when you're telling them about the process, telling them about how you're doing, being open and honest about exactly um, what what you're going to do. So th- I think that was a you know, for me, that's a critical part of, of how I approach these kind of things. I agree. I think that uh, sometimes PIs do like that cloak and dagger feeling of that I know something you don't know and I'm not going to tell you. Yeah, you know, it's it's. I, I think it's pretty pervasive in our <laughs> in our business, and I, I, and personally, you know, it, everybody has their own sort of two cents about it. Um, but personally, that's not how I approach it. I don't think it really helps at all. Some some clients really like that. Some clients want, some attorneys really want to hire that person who is the cloak and dagger type person. Um, you know, everybody has their own way yeah, uh, of approaching things. And I, I just choose not to do that. And it's been successful for me. And, and you know, not everybody would would approach it that way. I think it's a great approach, Brian. I mean, there's no que- there, you, you don't leave any questions, which is the, the great thing about it is the client isn't saying, oh, now what is he doing now and how is he spending my money and how come I haven't heard from him and, you know, where is he going with this and all those questions that create anxiety at the client level. Yeah, and I think ultimately, depending on the type of case you're working on, especially in a litigation matter, you know, mm-hmm. you have to... It, where the information is coming from is is typically really critical, <laughs> you know. And when you're searching for a person, it doesn't really matter how you found them at the end of the day. Um, but in in a litigation matter, it may come up in court. I mean, you may have to testify, and then you may have to say, "Well, where did this information come from?" And if it came from some sketchy source, then you might have a problem, and your client might have a problem. So, um, you know, I think. In general, I think an open, honest, transparent process helps breed better relationships with with your ultimate client, um, and, and and a trust level of you know of, of working with you. That's you know that's very good, and we need to. Ex- <laughs> I think each one of us need to examine ourselves really closely for that because sometimes we just get caught up in the 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 work, caught up in the work, and forget maybe to communicate uh, with the person that we're really that is really our client. We need to take a break. Brian, we'll be right back after a quick commercial break. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com IRB Focus, created by IRB Search, brings together the best data in an entirely new system. New features and data, all in a responsive format, gives professional investigators a better tool to close cases. The just-to-launch connections network even gives secure opportunities for collaboration and job referrals. Learn more about IRB Focus at irbsearch.com or call us at 1-800-447-2112 to get started. 
Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. New Yorker Brian Willingham is a private investigator, and today's topic is what do you do when you can't deliver what you promised? And I think to have dealt right into this, Brian, um, is you have a, a really good process for dealing with client expectations where you avoid setting yourself up for feeling like you failed. So let's go, let's go through some of that. What, what do you start out with? Well, I, I think, you know, one of the, the examples that we talked about before is, is the communication process, um, communicating from the onset about what to expect, um, you know, toning down your expectations, uh, whatever the case may be. Um, you know, sometimes you get all excited about something and you say, yeah, I can do this, this, and this, but I think it's important to sort of, um, you know, tone that down. Um, and, you know, the communication, I think, is just, incredibly, incredibly um, important. Um, and, you know, one of the processes I always use is, 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 is setting up those sort of communication expectations right at the beginning. In the case we were talking about before, I said, you know, I will have, I'll contact you in a week, you know, and then setting up sort of the parameters of how we're going to communicate. Um, and, 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 and during that process, you know, good or bad, giving her some type of update. I remember when I first got into the business, I, I would kind of be managing uh, surveillance matters, um, and I, I would always be worried about calling a client if we didn't have anything or we lost them or whatever the case may be, mm-hmm. and I realized quickly that that was just an awful approach because then it left the client wondering, and they would call you and trying to figure it out. You know, I'm always trying to sort of beat the client to the punch and communicating early and often uh, so they're not always sort of in the dark. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Um, 
And I think establishing that from the beginning rather than letting it evolve, because I think that's what usually happens, is people let the communication evolve without having set parameters like I'm going to call you in a week with an update or I'm going to send you an email in a certain period of time or a, a memo, whatever it is, where they have yeah. an expectation. Yeah. And no, nobody likes that, you know, sort of unknown, you know, when are they going to get back to me? What is, you know, <laughs> no, nobody likes that. You know, are they mm-hmm. going to get back to me in six weeks from now or are they going to call me next week? So, you know, I think it's, it's important to, I, I try to set those things up right at the beginning. Say, hey, I'm going to give you an update at this date. And it's important to hit those things too. <laughs> if you're going to say you're going to do something, uh, you know, you got to do it. Um, well, so and, that's the other, the other part of yeah. it. And if you put yourself in the other person's shoes, on the other side of it, and you're the person that's waiting for the information, mm-hmm. it changes your whole perspective. Because we, yeah. we all get put in the position of waiting for somebody to call back, waiting for a letter, waiting for a result. And it, it does create anxiety, even if it's not that big a deal, you're still wondering, you're spending your time thinking about it. Yeah, and it can be really painful. I deal with a lot of um, court retrievers. I do a lot of, you know, really in-depth background investigations and searching courts all over around the country, dating back, you know, 20, 25 years and having people hand-check courts and things along those lines. And mm-hmm. court retrievers are, are notorious for not being all that effective communi- communicators. Um, you know, and, and typically, you know, we're working on tight deadlines. And, um, you know, it's it's just important to communicate what, when you're going to have a result back, the timing of when you're going to have something back because other things rely on it. And, you know, I was working with a retriever recently who refused to email me, call me back about when they were going to get something. And it just built up all this anxiety. But it wasn't, Mm -hmm. you know, this urgent thing. I just needed to know. And then she said, okay, I'll have it for you on Thursday. And then she didn't deliver it on Thursday. So it just creates this whole process and then anxiety. It's just, you know, communicating, hey, if she had emailed me and said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to have something for you on Thursday, I'll have it for you by Monday, I would have been fine with that, but she didn't. <laughs> and then I, wait, I hung around and waited on Monday, and then I became furious that she hadn't gotten me anything. So right. anyway, the, yeah. the, the, the moral of that story is that, you know, good or bad, I just need some sort of communication, and the anxiety makes it infinitely worse. Yeah, and I, and I actually think we've been on both sides of it. We've been the, the person that hasn't communicated periodically, sure. and we're the person that, that hasn't been communicated to. Yeah. So, which brings me to your next point, Brian, which I think is uh, a really interesting point. And you say, keep your promises to yourself. I love that. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you get caught in this trap. I mean, you know, you want... <laughs> You know, you think that you can deliver something for somebody, uh, especially if it's a new client, it's a potential big matter. Somebody calls you and says, hey, I want you to do this. Um, you know, you can, you can get certainly caught up, uh, caught up in sort of the excitement of it and say, oh, yeah, I can do this and I'll get, I'll get the goods for you, so to speak. Um, but it's just... There are no guarantees in this business, and there's no guarantees in a lot of things other than death and taxes, as they say. Um, you know, there's so many independent variables in whatever types of cases that you're working on, um, and, and you know, building up promises that you can't really, at the end of the day, keep. Um, 
is 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 a, just a recipe for potential disaster. I mean, the promises that you can keep are communicating effectively, you know, keeping them on top of things and uh, doing the best job you can uh, and, and, you know, sort of laying out a reasonable expectations, but you can't guarantee the results. So, I mean, there's, there's, there's really no guarantees. And then keeping those promises to yourself is, is one of those tenets that I hold to dearly. Well, and, and in the case of your court retriever, uh, say, for example, if she'd come back to you and said, you know, you know, I, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm up to my eyebrows and work right now. I can't possibly get it to you till Tuesday. And then by some wild imagination, she got it to you by Monday. Anyway, right. you would have been ecstatic. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I think it's a general saying, under promise and over deliver. And that's, I think that's a really critical thing, you know, and not trying overwhelming yourself by saying, I'll get you something tomorrow and you really can't, uh, you know, trying to be reasonable about it. And people are usually reasonable back, um, mm-hmm. you know, and it's really just a matter of that expectation. If you say you're going to do something, deliver on it or deliver early, uh, <laughs> over deliver, uh, whatever the case is. And I think that mm-hmm. that can go a long way. Now, how does that work? Say you have a a client that says, Brian, I absolutely have to have this by tomorrow. Mm-hmm. What do you do with that? And, and you know that it's probably not going to happen. You know, it's <laughs> a great question. If somebody called me today and said, I absolutely need to have something tomorrow, um, I, I would just be as upfront and honest as I possibly can. I will do everything in my power to get it done, but realize that, you know, there may be things out of my control that, that can't get it done. You know, I think it's just a matter of being open and honest and transparent about it. And people mm-hmm. usually accept it. And, it. and and if it's that urgent of a matter or if it's that important that it needed to be done tomorrow and that I didn't feel like I could do it, I would tell them to go to somebody else. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, you can only do <laughs> what you can do. Uh, and there's no sense in making a promise that, that you can't keep because then you look bad and everybody looks bad. Uh, so there's really no sense in that for me. Well, and, and what happens, I, I think I probably know what you're going to say here. What happens when you say, well, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do it. Um, uh, let me refer you to somebody that can. What do they say to you usually? People are pretty, uh, people have a lot of respect for it. I mean, I think about it in my own personal um, situations. Is people have a lot of respect. I mean, if I feel like I can't do something or there's somebody better fit to do it, um, people respect that. I, I respect it. Um, you know, being, <laughs> it's that honesty. I keep saying the same words over and over again, but it's that honesty. And it, it resonates with people. Um, they because it, it develops a sense of trust. You know, like if he says that this guy is better at doing X, Y, Z than he is, you know, maybe when there's another matter down, down the road, um, they're going to call me first because they know that I'm going to give them an honest answer. I'm not trying to take a buck from them. Um, so that's, that's generally how I would handle that. Yeah, and, and don't, but don't you find that sometimes when you tell, them, uh, tell your client that... Um, Say, for example, that you won't be able to get it by that time. You're happy to refer them to somebody else. Or, or maybe sometimes what comes up often is that, um, you know, I don't want to pay that much money. Um, 
and you say, well, I'm happy to refer you to somebody that charges less, right. you find out you end up with the client anyway because you have been that transparent. Yeah, I, you know, I, I really think that's the case. You know, I, I, people have, I've talked to a lot of other investigators and, you know, I, I've been criticized for being a little bit too transparent with things and, um, and, 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 and with things like that, referring things to other client, uh, other investigators uh, who might be able to do it because, you know, well, maybe that client won't, won't ever call you back and they'll start using that. I have enough confidence in my, um, in my ability um, to do to do a good job, um, I have enough confidence that you know that I'm going to get other cases like that, um, and I have enough confidence that you know if these situations um, arise in the future, I, you know I'm, I have that thing, these things will come back to you. If I refer something to somebody, then maybe somebody will refer something back to me. Um, so you know that's just how. I, I am personally, and that's how I am personally, and that's how I am with my business, and that's how I approach it. And, you know, it's like I said, it's not for everybody, <laughs> but it right. works for me. And I was, you know, I was just thinking while you're talking there, I, I have this, this one attorney that I know in the area where I am, and he f- fairly frequently calls me for referrals for different people. I've never worked for him. <laughs> <laughs> But he calls me for referrals, and I right. think it's just the oddest thing, you know. Um, and he's evidently had some good results with the referrals I've given him, right. so that's a good thing. Thank, and that's a really good thing. But uh, finally, for the first time uh, about a month ago, he called me for a case. But I've known him for 25 years. Right. It's so I, you know, strange. It, it, yeah, it, it's an interesting thing, you know. I I think one of the values that that you know, obviously you bring and that I try to bring is being a good resource. So I'm not just like an investigator who's trying to hoard all the work, but I'm trying to be a resource of information for people and a resource of saying, hey, I know a lot about this stuff. I'm not, I don't know everything, but if I, you know, if I think that so-and-so might be better at handling this or this is the route that I think that you should take, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I'll, I have no problem doing that. You know, I have something like um, thirty or thirty-five thousand people that come to my little website every single month, and they're just looking for information. A lot of people call me just trying to gather information. So, it, it, it can be a time-consuming process <laughs> responding to inquiries of people just looking for information. But you know what? Like like you mentioned, I'm trying to be a resource to people to to help them because ultimately that's what I'm really trying to do. That's really true. That's, that's a really cool point. And as, now that you mentioned your website, I, I just want to say, Brian, you have written a number of articles, really good articles, I think, uh, that people might be interested in. Where would they go to find that? Well, I have a pretty extensive blog that I've written a couple of hundred articles on. Uh, it's diligentiagroup.com, D-I-L-I-G-E-N-T-I-A group.com. Uh, and you can go to the blog, and, and I've written close to 200 articles. Uh, I've also written a bunch of articles for Pursuit Magazine, which if, if you haven't um, visited that, it's a fantastic resource. 
uh, of information. So I've written a number of articles on that, which are more geared toward um, investigators. So my website is more geared for people who are trying to locate information, find information, how the process that you can kind of go through um, with that. And I've written a couple articles for PI Now as well. Um, so those are the three main places where I've, 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 um, you can find some of my stuff. Yeah, and so how would people get Pursuit Magazine? Pursuit Magazine is an online um, magazine. Uh, it was taken over by Hal Humphreys a couple of years ago, um, and he's really turned it into this absolutely phenomenal resource for investigators. It's Pursuit Magazine. It's P-U-R-S-U-I-T, I think it's mag.com, pursuitmag.com. Okay. Um, so that's that's the best place to get that. Yeah, and, and I... And that's for anybody, but PI now would just be for private investigators and people that yeah. do similar businesses. Yeah, the, the, it's, a, um, it's, a, it's a source for identifying investigators around the country, um, and they also have a really pretty good collection of, uh, of articles and sources for um, how to find an investigator and how to approach it and that kind of stuff. So they're both very, very good resources for both private investigators and people who are interested in looking for private investigators. Well, I have to. I want to mention a, a few of your uh, topics that you've okay. done articles on because I, I, <laughs> I love your titles. It's five marketing strategies investigators can master by thinking <laughs> like a dominatrix. That's a good one. How did I know and, you were going to bring that one up? <laughs> uh, a slave to the billable hour. Um, yeah. Eighty-one ways attorneys can summon their inner Sherlock Holmes. These are just great titles that just draw you in. You have to read them. You know, I, well, I appreciate that. I became a freelance evangelist for private investigators. I, <laughs> I put a, a lot of uh, a lot of hard work and effort went into uh, not only drafting the articles, but uh, but <laughs> but uh, coming up with a catchy title that people might actually <laughs> want to check on. You know, it's funny. My I was never a good writer um, growing up, <laughs> and and it probably wasn't. It was one of my worst subjects. Um, but I did have it in my blood. My father, my uh, grandfather, uh, was a, was a writer, and he actually co-wrote the uh, screenplay for The Graduate. So he wrote really? several books. Uh, so it's kind of in my blood. So I think he passed away a number of years ago. But he would probably be proud that I've that I've actually caught on to the whole writing thing. <laughs> well, that is so cool. And and you're you are a very interesting writer. It's it's very enter- entertaining. You get your point across in a very entertaining way. I love it. Well, great. I appreciate Very it. Cool. Uh, and, really appreciate it. Yeah, and, and plus they're, they're good points. That's, that's the most, it's not just entertaining. They have meaning, like five things a lawyer never wants to hear from a private investigator. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, we you, need to you know, hear that. Are, yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> things that, you know, we kind of, you know, one, one of the things that I, when I first started in this business, is I was trying to, you know, be a little bit different than, than everybody else. And there really wasn't a whole lot of, uh, investigators who are writing sort of interesting or entertaining blogs. So, you know, when I started, I just started sort of writing. And, I, and probably at the beginning, I probably wasn't all that good at it. And if I look at some of the old articles um, or blog posts that, you know, I, I, I would kind of cringe. But over time, you know, it's just thinking about stuff and applying, you know, what I'm doing on a daily basis and, and writing about it. You know, I'm, I'm not... The, 
these are things that I do on a daily basis. I'm looking for airplanes. I'm trying to find uh, military records from you know 50 years ago. Uh, you know, and I'm trying to market my business like a dominatrix. I was working on a case, that whole case. <laughs> Brian, I got to interrupt. Hang on to that thought, will you? Because we have to take a break. I'm getting a notice. Uh, but hang on to that thought. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. IRB Focus, created by IRB Search, brings together the best data in an entirely new system. New features and data, all in a responsive format, gives professional investigators a better tool to close cases. The just-launched Connections Network even gives secure opportunities for collaboration and job referrals. Learn more about IRB Focus at irbsearch.com or call us at one 800 447 2112 to get started. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll free right now at 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. <laughs> You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Delighted today to have Brian Willingham, private investigator. Brian, I cut you off right as you were talking about thinking like a dominatrix. So I, we've got to go forward. With Great that. timing for that break. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I tell think us this how, deserves, how you do that. <laughs> I think this deserves a little uh, backstory. Uh, well, a couple of things. One is. You know, like I mentioned, I, I like to write. I write quite a bit. Um, and one of the things that I do is try to sort of mix the things that I do or my hobbies or, or the things that I really enjoy 
um, with with my profession because I think there's always a lot of transferable skills. There's a lot of things that you can learn from your daily life and apply it to your business. I write about, you know, I like to cook. I really write about being a chef and being baseball and how kids, what kids can teach you about um, the business. Um, and so this was not one of my hobbies, but uh, I happened to be working on a case, uh, doing some research on a dominatrix. Uh, and the, the, essentially the story is I was trying to identify the, the, the nickname. We had a nickname of a dominatrix, and we were trying to identify who she was. And I ultimately did. Um, and, and as I was going through it, um, you know, I, it was this whole little world that I really didn't know existed other than sort of what you see on TV. And it, it was fascinating. But, you know, when I, as I'm going through this whole case, my wheels are sort of spinning in my head about, you know, um, how, how our worlds are, can be alike. Uh, and as much as you may think that's absolutely crazy, uh-huh. you know, one of the things that dominatrixes do is they make friends with their competitors. And, you know, I think that was always one of the things that, that I've tried to do in my profession is it's critical to have a bunch of investigators that you know who to call on that are great at their profession, who have skill sets that you don't have. Um, so that was one of the lessons that I learned from it, you know, being a trusted source, which is one of the things that we talked about before, you know, um, being a resource for other people. Um, so if somebody calls me and says, hey, I need an investigator uh, in Portland, I would tell them to call so-and-so. Or if I have needed an investigator in Germany, I know exactly mm-hmm. who to call. And one of the most fascinating things that <laughs> I found out about it is that, you know, before a dominatrix meets with their clients, uh, which they call them, they they have this interview with them and they talk to them and they get their medical history because, you know, obviously in case things get a little bit too crazy, they, they have to know these things. And they said, you know, really? what their boundaries are and all this stuff. And I was flabbergasted. I was like, <laughs> this is not what you think of when you see it or the movies yeah. have depicted it. You know, it's all about the sort of dominatrix part of it. Um you know, but th- this is exactly what we were talking about is, is that interview up front and meet, you know, right. setting boundaries and <laughs> managing expectations and setting the tone sort of early. Like the dominatrix will say, I won't do this. If you want to do this, then go to somebody else kind of thing. So, um, you know, th- those are the things. And uh, th- there was a several other lessons that I pulled out of there, including uh, charging what you're worth, which dominatrixes are not cheap. In case you ever, in case any of our listeners <laughs> wanted to go down yeah, that exactly. road, but, um, but you know, th- things along those lines, and you know, kind of cross, um, kind of figuring out the different things between their business and our business that kind of uh, apply to each other. What a fascinating analogy! I love it. <laughs> that and it and it um I mean it does give you all sorts of mental images uh, when you're talking about it however uh, I mean I can see definitely you need to never thought about the medical part of it yeah no you don't think about these yeah. things until you really start getting and you know it really had me going and and you know it's interesting because as I was getting into it you know one of the things that the, is the, about the dominatrix world is it there's this secrecy and mystery behind it, uh, which is very similar to our business, you know. <laughs> so, and and how they approached it. Um, so, listen, our businesses are very different, uh, but there's there's some fascinating sort of 
lessons that I think you could take from anything and you know and and apply to it. Um, and you know, as, as we've been talking about today, you know, failure is a part of your life, and taking those lessons that from other parts of your life and sort of applying them to um, your business, your business and your life are are very very much go hand in hand. And I run my business like I run my life. And you know, I, about all these things that we're talking about today, um, if you, you find anybody that knows me, that's that's who I am, and I'm <laughs> I'm not yeah. pretending anything here. Yeah. That's great. That's great, Brian. And I will forever associate you with that example, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. (laughs) That is exactly the image. The first time we meet each other, I'm going to come in with leather pants (laughs) and a whip. How about that? (laughs) Yeah, that's that's great. Knock on your door. (laughs) But it it is a perfect example. And, um, And, you know, back to the points we're making, I'm going to bring us back on track here, okay. dealing with client expectations. Um, you've, you talk about there's no guarantees, and, you, and I, I think that the general public often thinks that we have some kind of magic wand or, or sorcerer's skills or access that other people don't have, and it's yeah, really I, not true. It's not. You're absolutely, well, I don't know about some people I know have a magic wand, but I'm not one of them. No, but you're absolutely right. And I think that has always been one of the biggest challenges with managing expectations, especially with the general public. You find it less um, with attorneys because um, they, they tend to have known people and use people, but even attorneys can sort of have these images. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, years of movies and television and there's just these general misconceptions about um, the work that we do and what we're capable of. I get calls and emails nearly every day asking me for some insane thing that just does not uh, exist. And I can't think of a uh, (laughs) one one call that I had gotten uh, a long time ago was the woman called me and said, can you break into my boyfriend's house and um, steal his tax records. And I said, no, I can't can't do that. You know, there's just this conception that we have all these powers that that we really don't do. And and the the truth of the matter is we don't really have that much more power than a citizen. We have access to certain certain things. We have an expertise that we know how to do things and And how to obtain information. Um, And, and, you know, in many states you have to have a license in order to do what we do. Um, But there's no magic thing. You know, I can't... I get a call. I just thought of a story. I get a call from a woman um, who happens to reside in the local town that I live in here. She has a picture from 1976 of a two-year-old person, and she wanted me to um, somehow morph the picture into what the person would look like today and then figure out who that person was from the picture by doing some sort of facial recognition character kind of thing. And, you know, that's like very CSI-ish. And, and you can't do that? And, you know, You're not able to do that? <laughs> I don't do that on a daily basis, no. Right. <laughs> but, you know, and, you know, sometimes it's just trying to figure out a, a better solution. So we talked right. about it and tried to figure out, you know, how we can actually figure out a solution that might help her. At the end of the day, you know, I don't think there was really anything that we could do because all she had was a picture and she didn't even know what year it was from. And there was no identifying marks or uh-huh. characteristics on the picture. But anyway... 
there's this general sort of, you know, misconception about what we do, and I hear about it quite often. Yeah, that's for sure. And uh, now, one of your points, uh, of course, which is always important, is to put things in writing. Do you do you uh, put a proposal in writing first, or do you agree on something with a client and then put it in writing? We typically will agree on something first and put it in writing. I, you know, I... I, I, I tend, what I will do is I'll have a lengthy conversation with them and I try to recap the conversation in as few sentences as I possibly can saying, all right, this is your problem. These are, I think, are some of the solutions. Excuse me. And this is kind of what the budget uh, I would sort of outlay. And it'll be all things that we had discussed during the conversation, you know, mm-hmm. not having any surprise. I don't want to have any surprises and that kind of stuff. So, you know, from there, if they say go ahead, then I'll draft up, uh, you know, an engagement letter that would outline some of those things in the budget and then um, go from there. And, you know, obviously having those things in writing, I think, are are critical. So there is no miscommunication. You said this. Exactly. I thought you were going to do this. Right. Um, you know, laying it out exactly how you want to handle it. And even if I have a verbal, I had a um, sit-down meeting with a client the other day, He's asking me to do a lot of other stuff that we hadn't originally talked about. We're kind of outside the scope and the budget. Um, I put it in writing as soon as I left there, and I said, hey, this is what we talked about. We're going to raise the budget to X. So, you know, again, it's so you don't have that miscommunication. <laughs> so he can email me back and say, hey, I didn't agree to that, you know, and that's fine, you know, as long as you have it. It's not a matter of just having it in writing. It's just making sure that you understand each other, <laughs> you know, right, things right, get lost exactly. in translation sometimes, and just having something to refer to to say, all right, this is what I said I would do, and this is what I am going to do, and this is, and if there's any dispute about it, then I happen to have it in writing, um, so we can all agree to it. Yeah, and then your next point is focus your investigation, and, uh, you know, stay focused. Don't let your client get you sidetracked with, you know, uh, other areas that aren't going to bear fruit. Yeah, I, I think that, that that happens quite a bit. I mean, you, you, you tend to come up with a game plan, um, and if that game plan, you know, may not be working right at the beginning, your client wants to change everything. And I think it's critical in cases, um, especially when you're working on big, larger, more complex cases, is is doing things sort of in stages and brackets and and trying to you know sort of not necessarily checking off the box but you know n- staying focused on what your original plan was things change things always change but you mm-hmm. want to kind of at least uh, bear out the fruit of what you've been doing um, this one particular case I'm working for um, a a retail firm. Uh, who's one of their competitors is allegedly stealing things from them. Um, mm-hmm. So we were contacting the company and trying to uh, elicit some information out of them. And we had a plan in place. And, you know, I made it clear to the client, like, I need to do X amount of research before we can sort of put this to bed and, and say, um, all right, we'll move on to something else. Because if I made one phone call or whatever the case was, it doesn't really tell you anything, <laughs> you know. Um, so, right. you know, working in those stages, I think, sort of helps sort of manage the expectations uh, a little bit better as well. Exactly. And, and actually communicating, if the, if the client is changing the focus, 
addressing that's you know you're changing this this is changing now you this is what we were going to do uh this is what you you're budgeted for now the focus is changing we need to talk about that yeah because it changes everything i mean if you're changing your focus it sort of changes the budget it changes what mm-hmm. you what you can and can't do within those parameters and um you know and communicating what what that is going to do and what that's going to change, I think, is, is important. Things change. Things always yeah. change, but it's, you know, having that communication throughout the process that sort of helps the matter. And then at the end, uh, I, and I think that's where we started when, when we started the show about you giving your client an honest assessment about finding her father. Give an honest assessment on what you did, maybe a summary of what you did, where it went, and um, even though maybe you didn't come up with the results your client wanted. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I think it's critical um, it, presenting them with something at the end. You know, you can talk about all this stuff, and, you know, you, you have to spend time and effort in writing a report, and nobody ever really likes doing that. It's not the most fun part of your job. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think writing it out sort of helps in a number of ways. You know, you're kind of... And justifying is the wrong word, but you're kind of justifying, you know, what you did and the approach you took um, and how you went about it and the thought process that you went behind it. And it makes you think critically about what you did, and it also gives you a chance to sort of step back and say, okay, is there anything I could have done better? Is there anything I did wrong? You know, <laughs> sort of assessing in the whole manner. And then the client at the end of the day has something in front of them that says, listen, they went through all this, and they couldn't come up with it. And here are some suggestions if we wanted to go forward, uh, X, Y, and Z, that we could do this, this, and this. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think I, in general, it, yeah. it's, it's well appreciated. Well, and I think uh, what you just said about uh, putting it writing, you may realize that there's something you should have done that you missed that the client really paid for. And you, you missed it, and you have an opportunity to go back and gather that information or at least address that that maybe you didn't think about before you put it all in writing. Absolutely. I think, you know, I, I say this all the time uh, to people, anybody that will listen, but writing things down, writing about what I do, writing a report, um, it helps you to kind of take a step back and think about it critically. Think about like how the client is ultimately going to see this. Um, and it makes you think about things. <laughs> it makes you, know, you think critically it, you know, I about hadn't it. thought of this before, Brian, but it seems like it, would t- it takes your ego out of the situation and when you see it in black and white. Yeah, absolutely. And you start thinking like the other side. You yeah. know, you start yeah. thinking about the person who's ultimately receiving this. Would I be happy with this? Do you feel like I, they could have done a better job? Is there something that's obvious here that, like, an obvious follow-up question or an obvious thing that should yeah. have been followed up? Um, it, it totally takes you. <laughs> you go out of it. You got to check your ego at the door when you're doing this. So. Yeah, because sometimes you just, when you're in, this, in the middle of the battle, you may not think about that one thing that you think about when you sit back and actually analyze it. You're absolutely right. I think I, I talk about that quite a bit. Um, when you're sort of knee-deep in things, um, uh, it, it's, it's hard to see the forest through the trees, you know. So it, yeah. you, you, it really makes you take that step back, and I think it's, it's absolutely critical. Brian, these are all really good points. Thank you so much for being here today. We, uh, we're at the end of our hour, if you can believe that. We could talk forever. Um, 
but it's been, I think, really instructive. I really appreciate the time you've taken. And please go read Brian's articles on um, Diligentia.com. Is that my getting that right? You got it. Okay. Can you spell that again for us? D-I-L-I-G-E-N-T-I-A group.com. Okay, great. All right, listeners, tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators like Brian Willingham. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 